We welcome you all once again this evening to the service, and we have a good audience with visitors with us, I believe. And so whoever you are, wherever you're from, we certainly want you to feel welcome, and we want you to be comfortable. We're enjoying uh, the meeting, and we're looking forward to studying the scriptures together for a while this evening. One of the things that the Apostle Paul wrote about in the New Testament was the need of congregations being fitly joined together. And uh, this is, I think, a need in every congregation. doesn't make any difference where it is. And so I taught this at home, and I feel no hesitation of teaching it here. He wrote of our being fitly joined together, and the original word in the Greek means to be closely joined together, as you might have guessed. And when we see a congregation that is closely joined together, I can assure you it is not an accident. In order for this to be the case, in order for a congregation to be fitly joined together, every member has to be willing to contribute to his or her share to the well-being of the church. And if some are only interested in their own well-being, they may exhibit that attitude in ways which cause other members to feel disenchanted and disappointed by their selfish actions. And members who are inconsistent of, or I should say inconsiderate, of others' feelings and spiritual well-being are not fitly joined together, nor will a group of, of people, no matter how large a building, if it is full of those kinds of people, you're not going to have a congregation that are, that is, I should say, fitly joined together. So I want to study with you about some things this evening that deal with that, with that topic. Let's begin by asking a simple question. What is a Christian? Well, from, a, from God's perspective, and I think you need to understand this, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed to old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so when an individual hears the word of God and he believes it, repents of his sins, confesses his or her faith in Christ, and is baptized in water for the remission of sins, from God's standpoint, this individual is a new creature. I mean by that, that this individual now is free of their sins. God has washed away all of their old sins by applying the blood of Jesus Christ to him. The sixth chapter of Romans tells us that we are baptized into the death of Christ and that like as uh, he was raised up, uh, we also are raised up uh, to walk in newness of life. And so obviously since Jesus shed his blood in his death, when we are baptized into, uh, into Christ, we are obviously baptized into his death or baptized into um, his being, which allows us to contact his blood. So we're new creatures, and old things are passed away. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just because God sees us as new creatures, that we always see ourselves as new creatures. And I think this sometimes is a real problem. God may cleanse us, he may wash us, he may make us every whit whole and clean. However, if we do not change our life, that is, if our repentance has only been momentary, you know, repentance involves a change of heart that results in a change of life. Or, you might say, repentance is a change of life that is brought about by a change of heart. Solomon, I believe it was, said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
And so that's absolutely the way it is. If you continue to think in the old ways, if your mind continues to be filled with things that are not good and that are not clean and that are not pure, then it is very unlikely that you're going to be able to very long be successful in living a life that is clean and pure. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul said, and I think this passage illustrates how we become new. Paul said that you put off all concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You're welcome to come on in, sir. We're to put off our old man, our old former conversation. Now, the, uh, the, in the King James Version, which I use exclusively, I just love it. That's what I'm used to using, and that's, uh, uh, that just is too late for me to change after 40 years. But the word conversation in the King James Version often means, most of the time, in fact, it means, our manner of living or our way of life. And so Paul says we are to put off concerning the former conversation or the former way of life, the old man, which is, he said, corrupt. Now, after we obey the gospel, we don't want to continue to live in a, in a man or be a man that is still corrupt, who still thinks bad things and who still does bad things. We want to put that kind of life away, put it off. And he said it is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. One of the things that is sad about sin is that it is, a de is, is deceitful in its nature. It's the kind of thing that promises us happiness. We think we're going to be happy if we can live in that sin when in fact it is only momentary pleasure. It's a little bit like when a child, have you ever noticed a child, you can't keep them happy very long. You ever notice that? Uh, they may want to go for an ice cream cone when they're little, I'm talking about. For that matter, when they get bigger, they may want to go for an ice cream cone. But have you ever noticed when you take a child and get him or her something that they really want, maybe an ice cream cone, they're so happy at the moment. But when the ice cream cone is gone, the happiness is gone. And so it was kind of an infatuation, you might say. It was an excitement that, that was brought about by the eating of the ice cream cone. But the happiness is short-lived, to say the least. And so that's the way sin is. It may promise happiness. It may look like a great time. And in fact, the Bible speaks of the pleasures of sin in the world. But the truth of it is, it is a momentary excitement or a momentary infatuation, if you will, about that kind of living. It's not going to really make you happy. And you may think you're going to be happy, but you will wake up one of these days and be sad and empty and feeling like you do not have what you need to have in order to really be happy. So Paul said we put it off and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that uh, you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It, it is a fact that too many never become new within themselves. And until they become new within themselves, until they start living a different life and thinking a different way, it is not very likely that they're going to long be successful in living the Christian life. Now then, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, 
I am crucified with Christ. How could he say that? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Well, obviously he is still living, and so he wasn't crucified with Christ in a physical way. Paul is not telling us that he was crucified like the Lord was on a cross and died physically. But he refers to his crucifixion in a figurative way. He refers to the fact that he has cut off all of his old life. And, uh, you know, when we die, we're cut off from this life. And so Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I have cut off sin. I've cut off the old way of living. And so the way I live now is not the way I used to live. The way I think now is not the way I used to think. And that's the key, to learn to think differently so that you will, in fact, be different rather than just having to put on an act of living and looking like you're better. So he said, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. How does Christ live in us? According to Ephesians 3 and verse 17, the Bible tells us that Jesus dwells in our hearts by faith. There is such a thing as the indwelling Christ. People like to talk about the indwelling of the Spirit. But the Bible speaks of the indwelling Christ. And the Bible tells us that we have that he dwells in us by faith. Well, all right, how do you get faith? Romans 10 and 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So let's see if we can figure this out. When you read your Bible, when you read your Bible and you read about what the Lord tells you to do and what the Lord wants you to be and how he wants you to be and how he wants you to think, if you let the Lord live in you, if you let his word dwell in you, and you begin to do those things that Jesus did and think in the way that he thought, be the kind of person that he was, Jesus is dwelling in your hearts through faith in his word. You know, I, I used to have trouble understanding how the spirit indwelled, how Christ indwelled, until I realized that I was looking at it from the wrong standpoint. How, do, how is it that sin dwelleth in us? Now, the Bible speaks of individuals in which it is said that sin dwelled in them or dwelt in them. How does sin dwell in a man? Well, sin dwells in a man by the actions he does. If you see a man whose actions are always evil, if he's a thief, if he's a profane or immoral man, sin is living in him. Sin is dwelling in him. On the other hand, if you see a man who's, who is producing the fruit of the Spirit, which according to the Scriptures are things such as love and joy and peace and goodness, and Paul said against such there is no law, you don't have to, you don't have, to have a law against those things because that's just going to improve the church. It's just going to improve the community in which the individual lives. So there is no law against those kinds of things. When you see an individual producing the fruit of the Spirit, you can be certain that not only is the Spirit dwelling in him, but Christ is as well. In fact, as I see it, they're pretty much the same thing. If one dwells in you, the other one will, and you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is a beautiful passage, and I want to spend just a minute or two on it. 
Paul said, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, under the Old Testament law, there was a morning and an afternoon sacrifice. Every morning at nine, every afternoon at three, third hour, ninth hour. There was a sacrifice. There was an oblation, as it was sometimes called, at the tabernacle or in the temple. And each time this service came, the priest came and would stand before the, uh, before the veil and he would officiate and he would offer the blood of a sacrificed animal in the place of the sins of Israel. This went on day after day after day after day. For nearly 1,500 years this continued. The only time this practice was altered was one day out of the year when they had what was called the Day of Atonement. Now you've probably heard of the Day of Atonement, but you may not realize how important it was and even is to us today. It had a typical or a figurative meaning which is absolutely beautiful to comprehend. You remember on the Day of Atonement, the Bible tells us how that an animal would be brought, it would usually be a goat, and this animal would be brought in and the priest would lay his hands on the head of that animal and confess over that animal the sins of Israel. And then the Bible says a strong man would lead that animal out into the wilderness and release him. That seems strange, doesn't it? What in the world could be the meaning of that? Oh, it's beautiful. Because you see... Once that animal was released, it figuratively carried the sins of Israel out yonder. Now, it was only figurative. And the only way you really find forgiveness under the Old Testament covenant is in a ceremonial sense. I mean by that, they were forgiven in the sense that that's all they could do, and God moved their sins away so that they were not held guilty of them. That is, they would not be condemned if they should die at that time. But every year, God would remember those sins again. And so when that animal was carried out into the wilderness, it figuratively or typically carried with it the sins of Israel. And when it was turned loose, it was, the animal became anonymous. Nobody knew where the animal came from. It was just another animal that wandered freely. Somebody probably would pick it up and bring it back and turn it into his or her own herd. But as far as the people were concerned and as far as God was concerned, it had a beautiful meaning because it's typified that the sins of Israel were carried into an anonymous state. Have you ever wondered where your sins go when you commit a sin and you ask God's forgiveness? Have you ever wondered where, what does he do with them? It isn't as though you haven't sinned. And yet God doesn't consider you guilty of sin. And so it, is, it was typified by this act. Your sins are out yonder in anonymity to you. And you will never be charged with those things again. They will never be identified with you again. You won't have to answer for them in the day of judgment either. God forgets about them. They're out yonder, as we might say, in never, never land, never to be seen again. And that's what this Day of Atonement was all about. It was a figurative expression and a figurative or typical act which pointed toward the time in which we live right tonight.
You know, we talk about God seeing the end from the beginning. That's the proof of it. He realized and he saw the time when his people, in fact, the Old Testament said, there would be a time, uh, God said, when he would not remember their sins and their, and their iniquities, but he would forgive them and remember them against them no more. The Day of Atonement was a type expressing that beautiful action. Well, so there was the animal that was sacrificed. But under the New Covenant, we don't sacrifice animals. And Paul said he wants our bodies to be a living sacrifice. Under the Old Testament, it was a dead sacrifice. But under the New, our bodies become a living sacrifice. How does, the, how does that work? Well, it's just, it goes back to the same idea as Paul saying, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. It is the idea of we crucify ourselves to sin and we turn our backs upon that, on that kind of thing, even though it may hold, uh, you know, an interest for us and we may have an affinity toward it. We turn our backs to that. And our bodies become a living sacrifice. Every day we just put our all on the altar and we sacrifice our wants and our think-sos and our ideas in order to put the Lord and his church first. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. He said, you do this that it may be holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And the word reasonable in the original language means rational or logical. In other words, it is no more than fair to ask us to live that way considering what the Lord has done for us. Jesus died for us. Is it too much to ask that we live for him? You see what I'm saying? You know, the idea of putting the Lord first is a difficult thing, and I'll try to get back to that before we're through with our lesson. But let me say also that a Christian is not only a new creature, but a Christian is also one who is a disciple of Christ. And as one reads the 11th chapter of the book of Acts in verse 26, you will notice there that in that passage, Barnabas had brought Paul to Antioch, and the scripture says for a whole year, they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Have you ever thought what this passage is really saying? Do you realize that it is difficult to get people to attend a week's meeting today? It's difficult. In fact, just last Lord's Day, I heard of a congregation in California, so don't be worried that it's Tennessee, but I heard of a congregation in California who had a meeting booked with a preacher for six years. And when the meeting time came, just one week, would you believe there were two families in that congregation that left that area and went to Disneyland? The meeting's been booked for six years. How long does it take to, cha to change plans to go to Disneyland? Overnight, at the most. And yet Paul and Barnabas assembled themselves with the church and for a whole year, and it is intimated or implied that every day they work diligently teaching much people. You talk about dedication. Were they putting the church ahead of themselves? There's the proof of it. There's the proof of it. And the Bible says it was there that the name Christian 
came to be known first. You think of the whole uh, of the dedication those brethren showed. In Acts 20 and 7, the Bible says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until morning. How can we become that dedicated? How, how can it be that we could ever become dedicated like those uh, New Testament people? Well, let me get back to the point I started to make a while ago and got a little ahead of myself. In Matthew 16 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, an obscure passage, and you've got to think about this a little bit to see what he is saying. Jesus is certainly not saying, and I've actually been asked the question by a few people, He's certainly not saying that if we obey the gospel, we've got to pick up a cross and lug it around with us all the time. We know better than that. And yet there is something that we do that is likened to bearing our cross. What do you suppose that might be? Well, bearing our cross is whatever it might be that we have to put away in order to put Christ first. It's not necessarily something that's wrong that we're putting away. But if it comes between us and our responsibility to the Lord, that comes second or third or fourth or somewhere else down the line, and the Lord and the church come first. I wouldn't be surprised, in fact I'm pretty sure, that the doctrine of self-loss, that's what I choose to call it, that the doctrine of self-loss is not the most difficult doctrine you'll ever have to accept. Now, if Jesus had said, deny yourself certain things, that would be pretty easy. But he didn't say that. It's far more encompassing. It's far greater. He said, just deny yourself. And so whatever it might be in my life that I really want, but it's going to infringe on my ability to live faithfully and serve faithfully while well, I put that somewhere else. And it goes down the line as far as intentions go and as far as importance goes. And so that's the way that I, I carry my cross. And I do it every day. You know, just here I remember a story. And by the way, this is a true story. And it literally tugged at the strings of my heart the moment I saw it. In the area where I live is a famous, world-famous hospital called Stanford. Uh, there's a great college there, but there's also a hospital, and they treat all sorts of diseases and do all kinds of research and all that kind of thing. Some years ago in the Bay Area, in the Stanford Hospital, a young lady came in to be, uh, have some research done. She was very, very sick, but nobody seemed to know what it was. And after running some tests, or remember this is true, after running some tests, they came up with a diagnosis, and I don't recall what the name of the disease was, doesn't matter, but it was almost always fatal, almost always. And they told her her only chance would be if she could receive some antibodies, like a vaccination, from someone who had had the disease and survived it, and their body had built up antibodies. Talk about a stroke of luck. Because this girl, this little girl, 
had an older brother who had had the same disease, as it turns out, and had miraculously survived it and was healthy. And so the doctors consulted with the parents. Would they consent to the little fella coming in and perhaps giving a transfusion of his blood to his, to his older sister, whose name was, by the way, Lisa? And they said, well, if he's willing, we're willing. And so the doctors brought the little fella in and they told him that this was a very serious situation and that his sister was probably going to die unless she received his blood because he had the antibodies in his blood that could make her healthy again. And would he consent, would he consider giving his blood to his sister so that she might be healthy again? The little fellow swallowed deeply a time or two and then said, yeah, I'll do it if it'll help Lisa. The next day, the transfusion was set up. They brought both young people in on a gurney and set them up near each other, and the transfusion began to take place. The little fellow looked over at his, at his sister and was just overjoyed to see the color begin to return to her cheeks as she received the transfusion. And then his face got sober. And he looked up into the face of the doctors and said, will I die right away? You see, he thought that he was going to have to die in order for his sister to live. But he unhesitatingly said, sure, I'll do it if it'll help Lisa. Now that's what you call dedication. And that's a true story. If you have a congregation of people who love each other to the point that they would do that sort of service for one another, you have a congregation that is fitly joined together. If we're going to be fitly joined together, there is a responsibility in the church for each of us. All of us have a responsibility to promote unity. In Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3, Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Are you getting this? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are fitly joined together because we are, well, we're working together in lowliness. That means the idea of not considering ourselves better than the other, but the other way around. And meekness. Meekness is interesting. I think most of us really don't understand what meekness is all about. And sometimes a meek person is thought to be a coward. Not at all. Meekness is the man who, or the woman who has the ability to strike back and perhaps even be, be victorious. But because of meekness, they choose not to do that. They choose to allow somebody else to have the upper hand. That's meekness. Has nothing to do with being a coward. And a meek person shows some of the strongest characteristics that you'll ever find anywhere. And then long-suffering. If we're uh, fitly joined together, 
We are joined together and we are long-suffering with each other. That is, we're not impatient with each other. We're willing to give one another time to make some changes and to uh, heal uh, maybe from a disagreement that we might have had. And Paul said, we forbear one another in love. That is, we put off any sort of, you know, any sort of retaliation because we love those people. And he said, then we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When you have that kind of peace, there, there is created by that feeling a bond that you are loath to break. It's so good. It's so wonderful that you just won't hardly allow anything to come along to ruin it. How can you do this? Well, quickly, we can do it by having a respect for the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul said, and here's another one of those plain passages that we hear all the time and is seldom really understood. Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I want you to notice quickly these words that Paul uses. He says, it is profitable, the word of God, scripture, that's what uh, you know, Scripture is what you write down, and that's what this book is, that which is written down. And Paul said all Scripture, everything that's written down in the Word of God, is given by inspiration, and he says it is profitable for doctrine. Look up the word doctrine, if you'd like, in a Bible dictionary. You'll find it simply means that which is to be taught. And so there is nothing better to teach than the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God. Use the Bible. I remember a story, a true story, where at the time, one of our younger preachers, not young anymore, but was young at the time, he had held a meeting at a place. And in those days, meetings ran two weeks, three Lord's Days, and about 26 sermons. And they wanted him back the next year. And this young man was just in a dither because he didn't have enough sermons to go back the next year. And he went to Brother Homer A. Gay. And he told him, said, what am I going to preach, Brother Gay, when I go back there next year? Brother Gay said, just preach the Bible. Just preach the Bible. That's, that's all you need to preach. That's what, you, that's what you ought to be preaching. And certainly, that's right. So doctrine is that which is profitable to be taught. And then, Paul said, it is also profitable for reproof. And this word reproof here in the original literally means it is able to convict us. That which is given in the word of God may convict us. Now let me illustrate how that works. If I fall away from the truth, the doctrine that is profitable to be taught, that same doctrine is also profitable to convict me of my sin. And then that same doctrine is also profitable to uh, correct me. And the word correction in the original means to restore to an upright state. So the same doctrine that is profitable to be taught may also convict me and then it may help me to rise back to an upright state. And then finally, Paul said, it is profitable for uh, instruction in righteousness. In order that I don't make the same mistake again, that same doctrine that is profitable for all of those other things is profitable now to keep me going in the right way. What a wonderful passage. What a wonderful passage. See, if we have a proper respect for the scriptures, 
No wonder, Paul said, it is thoroughly furnished, that is, we can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, we're not to just be going off in every direction and disagreeing with each other over things that really don't matter. In fact, listen to what he wrote to Titus in Titus 3 and 9. He said, but avoid foolish questions. You mean there's a foolish question? Yeah. There's foolish questions. And if you'll think about it, it could only be one thing. Foolish questions would have to be anything that is not germane to salvation. If it hasn't got anything to do with you going to heaven, brother, it's not worth fighting about. You realize that? It doesn't matter enough to disagree and cause trouble and have hard feelings if, if, if it's not going to keep somebody from going to heaven. Paul said you avoid foolish questions and genealogies. Now we don't have that problem today, but in Paul's day, the Jews, oh, they'd get around and argue. And they would try to trace their genealogical line back to Abraham. And brother, if they could, that was a big plus on their side. Paul said, forget all of that. Why would he say that? Well, because it didn't matter anymore whether you came from Abraham or wherever. Why? Because Christ is all and in all and everything to everyone now. It no longer matters about the law. The law's been fulfilled and Jesus nailed it to the cross, Paul said in the Colossian letter. So forget about all of those things and contentions, he said, and strivings about the law. Oh, they love to get together and argue about the law of Moses. Why? It didn't even apply to them anymore. That was some of those foolish questions that Paul is talking about. And Paul said they are unprofitable and vain. It, 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 there's no benefit to it. And I've often wondered why that some insist on inducing and introducing things either by their lives or by their private studies or teachings which are just likely to cause strife. I had a phone call today, in fact, about that very thing in another part of the United States. Why do people want to do that? I, I, don't, I just don't understand it. People like that will cause a congregation to not be fitly joined together. Well, I could go on and on. We can help by supporting the work of the church. And you know, I think every congregation needs to have a reason to be there other than just worshiping. I think one of the greatest things that ever happened to the church where I live, early on in the work when I started there, we started out with 13 people. And uh, early on in that work, the work in the Philippines began to kind of evolve and it looked like it was going to go and our people by that time we probably had 25 but our people got together and we made a commitment to see that that work went forward we agreed to back it come what may as long as those brethren over there were trying to do right and live right we would back it and they would send me over there once a year to help them and encourage them and for, so for 25 years now we've continued to do that the work has grown and it has progressed in wonderful ways. But I think also it has been tremendously good and profitable for the church at home. 
because it's given the brethren at home a reason to feel needed. Their contribution, they know, when they give, is going to be used for a profitable thing. It's not just going to sit in the bank account somewhere, but it's going to be used to preach the gospel. In fact, one of the proudest moments of my life, if you'll pardon me using that term, was some years ago when our treasurer got up before us in a business meeting and gave an account of the financial uh, affairs of our congregation and, to, and said, when you, when you figure it all out, here's the money that came in, here's the money that went out, and he said, of the money that came in, 97% of all of our expenditures went directly to preach the gospel. The other 3% paid the utilities and that sort of thing. 97%. That made me feel good. And that continues to be the case, perhaps not in those same uh, rationales, but that continues to be the case even today. And it's been so good for the brethren. If you, if you have a, a work that you all are involved in here, you know what I'm talking about. We can also help this be the case by maintaining the purity of the church because Christ died to make it pure according to Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. It's up to us to maintain the church. It's not going to happen by accident. If you want the church here in this place to be fitly joined together, well, it's going to take some work. And I'll leave this passage with you tonight. In Philippians 1 and 27, Paul said, Only let your conversation, there's that old uh, Elizabethan term again, meaning manner of life, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The word becometh there in the original means as is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be careful that whatever you do and whatever you are involved in, be careful that it is worthy of a Christian. Don't, you know, don't negate and don't lessen the value of your influence on the world by living in such a way that it is not worthy of the gospel of Christ, that it's not worthy of a Christian. Well, just think on these things. These are some things that we can be involved in if the church is, must be involved in, if the church is to be fitly joined together. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.